So you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. You, uh, you got a handy-dandy bookmark this morning um, with the Beatitudes on it. We've been walk- spending some time in the Sermon on the Mount. So um, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll be finishing the fifth chapter of uh, Matthew today. So I want to start with, with an example. We're going to be talking about uh, the part in us, or the, we might talk about people who do this, or the part that's in all of us that um, wants to be approved by following the rules, or wants to gain approval by following the rules. And I'll give you an example uh, from a like a highly disciplined, rule-following culture. Um, At the Air Force Academy, freshmen are required to keep their rooms in inspection order pretty much all the time. And at any point in the day, an upperclassman could come in and inspect your room, and so things need to be fit and tidy. But there are particular times where there are very formal inspections. One of those is on a Saturday morning, we call them Sammies, Saturday morning inspections. And that's sort of the white glove moment. It's a lot of high stress. And one of the chief places that is inspectable is your dresser drawers. Now, the bottom two, and my memory's fading on some of these things, but the bottom two drawers have a little bit more liberal standards. But your top two drawers, and particularly your top drawer, um, there's a, there was a template that we followed of exactly what socks needed to be in there and how they needed to be positioned and how many pairs of underwear and how they needed to be folded and your shirts and how they needed to be, be presented. And you, you fit this, this picture exactly. And over time, as the years went by, the standards for the top drawer rose progressively to the point where it was no longer possible to fold a shirt well enough for it to satisfy the standard. You couldn't fold a shirt and iron it folded well enough to meet the standard. And so this is what we did, and this is what everybody did. I didn't derive this. I inherited this. You got your T-shirt that needed to be in there, and you cut a large piece of fabric out of that T-shirt. And then you cut a piece of cardboard, the shape of the T-shirt, and you wrapped it around the T-shirt, and you pinned it in the back, and you put that in the drawer. And that was your inspectable shirt. Now, it wasn't even a shirt. It was a piece of, it was a rag. But that was your inspectable shirt. And for four years of college, I never once actually used the top drawer of my dresser. I never used it. It was just full of cardboard and cloth. What I lived out of was my trunk. And every cadet had a big blue trunk, and in it was what you put all the stuff that you actually used. And in inspections, everything was subject to inspection except for that. You had a padlock on that, and that was you. So I just want us to start this morning with the thought of a room a life where what is seen is never used and is not real, and what is unseen is where everything is hidden. Because we're going to talk about righteousness. 
I'm going to talk about what God cares about. And I just want, we all have a top drawer. We all have a top drawer and we all have a trunk. And I just want, I want us to get to the right place with the Lord on this today. Like I said earlier, today's Palm Sunday. Jesus walked into the city today and uh, glorified his king. Understandably, uh, given the signs and wonders he did, uh, and five days from now he'll be killed, understandably, because of what he said. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 21 is Palm Sunday. That's when Jesus comes in. Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25 is his last week in the city. Almost every word of those five chapters is Jesus saying things. He's not doing anything. He's talking. He's speaking. And as he speaks, it's what's turning the tide from this man is a king to this man needs to die. Some of what he's going to say this week on the way to his cross, he's saying in a slightly kinder way right now in Matthew 5, at the very beginning of his ministry. Last week, we began towards this, down this path with a verse 17. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. Rather, I came to fulfill the law. Meaning, the rules, the standards, the law of God is not something that Jesus is trying to overthrow, but rather try to bring fullness to. Verse 18 says something like this, not even the smallest letter of the law is going to pass away. There's nothing wrong with the law is what Jesus is saying. The law is not, a, there's no problem with the law. It's not obsolete. It's not waiting to be overturned. We're not waiting for a second version of the law. The law is good. In fact, verse 19 is going to follow that. It says you should do the law. Live the law. We talked about this, not the, the moral and the just law, not so much the ceremony law, but the law should be admired. It should point to God. We should think about it. We should, we should respect it. Meditating on the law should enliven us towards God. That's what he says in 19. And then in 20 he says, but don't get the notion that you can actually do the law. 19, honor it, regard it, live towards it, look at it, Know God through it. 20, but don't think you can actually satisfy it. Don't think that you can fulfill the very law that you admire. Today we're going to look at six examples in Scripture that Jesus puts out as far as how we should process this and sort of the the challenge that it presents this is going to be, uh, this is a way I think that Jesus is challenging something that is, at least in some part, in all of us. And for some people, it's, it is their religion, which is this notion that, uh, you can give it your own definition, but this notion that you are somehow good, good enough, that one day, if you, when you die and you go to the gates of heaven, you know, if there is a God and there are gates and Peter's there and he says, why should I let you in? That, some, that your answer is going to center around something like your goodness. Like you deserve to be there. I think many people operate this way, that if there's a God, he'd, he'd want me because 
I haven't really done anything wrong. Jesus is going to come to us with a message. So let's look at these six, uh, six examples. We'll start in the 21st verse. This is example number one. Let me go ahead and read it. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. But does it sound like he's abolishing the law here? Not at all. In fact, some of you might say it sounds like he's expanding the law. It sounds like he's shifting the goalposts. The law is do not murder. But it sounds, you might say, it sounds like Jesus is moving the goalposts from external behavior to internal behavior. But I don't think he's moving the goalposts. He didn't say he was coming to give us new law. He said he was coming to fulfill the law. Fulfilling a law doesn't mean giving us a whole new set of law. I don't think that Jesus is expanding on the law here. What I actually think he's doing is showing the true expanse of the law here. He's moving us from the rule, the written law, to the principle, the goal of God. The written law represents a discrete expression of a higher principle. So what Jesus is doing is informing us of God's intent, his higher intent, that gave birth to that particular law. And when you know that, when you know that God has a higher intent for you than the rule, then to say something like this, well, you know, I never really killed anybody, it kind of renders a phrase like that impotent before the Lord. Because it, it's not the rule that God cares about. It's, are you living according to the principles that gave birth to the rule? We see it here in the text. He says, you're coming to give an offering to the Lord. You're going to sacrifice an offering on the altar. Why would you do that? We would do that to make peace with God, right? So he's giving a, painting a picture of somebody who's traveling a distance to make peace with God. And then he realizes in the process of that, he gets all the way to the altar and comes to the conclusion, wait a second, I don't have peace with my brother. And Jesus says, how do you think you can have peace with God if you can't be at peace with your brother? It's not simply that you don't murder him. You need to have the heart of God with him. Now, the king who just came into the city today, right, who's rode in on a donkey, to whom we sang Hosanna, save us, 
He's the one who's saying this. Let's, let's look at the second example. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go into hell. Now clearly he's not abolishing the law here either. Nor is he making light of the teaching And to those of you who think actually what God does expect is that you gouge your eye out or chop your hand off, before you do that, I just want to ask you, here's a quick quiz, guys. Do you think that blinding yourself will solve the problem? I don't. I mean, I have memories from 11 and 12 years old that still have power in me. He's talking about the severity. He's saying, you think God cares about adultery. And you look at the sort of the judgmental wrath that he, in the law, that is placed upon that sin. He's saying that same sin, God has as much concern about it inside. In fact, this is the second time now that the word hell has shown up. Not with the external act of murder or adultery, but with the internal act of anger and lust. We might say it this way, with regards to lust. Your imagination is submissible evidence in the court of the judge. That's what the Lord is saying. Your imagination will submit to the judge. That when you get before the king, there's no pleading the fifth. Like it's all out there. Your thoughts, your very own thoughts that you think are deep behind a padlock, deep behind your chest, they are the very things that will indict you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, in both the case of murder and the case of adultery, there's something interesting that's happened here. Is, and it, it, it speaks to the tendencies of mankind. We have a tendency to be very interested in where is the line that we draw between the thought and what we would call the act? You know what I'm talking about? Where's that line where I can think about it? You know, so with lust, you know, there's, I'm just window shopping or look but don't touch, right? Uh, that sort of thing. But where does the line get drawn where it turns into adultery? And what Jesus seems to do is he seems to walk over and just with his foot, like, dust out the line. He, the line is irrelevant to him. It's irrelevant. We need to know the point. And I want you to think about what's actually going on in our hearts when we want to do this. We want to know the line. Why do we want to know the line? Someone might say, if we want to know the line so that we can know how to behave. I think we want to know the line so that we can know how to misbehave. That's why we want to know the line. We want to know the line so that we know exactly how much sinning can I do before you call it sin. That's why we want to know the line. Couple dating, they want to know how far is too far. 
Now, when someone asks me that, oh, I, I won't even act all pastoral about it. I was, I was a man once. <laughs> when I asked it, how far is too far? It wasn't because I was holy. It was because I was unholy. How much can I get away with and still have the top drawer looking good? That's what I want to know. When we draw these lines, we betray a clear hunger and thirst for the wrong thing. How much can I get? We define, we draw measurable lines so that we can see how much we're allowed to do without the principles of God in mind, without I wondering how the mind of God worked in such a way as to bring this rule to me, not with that sort of curiosity, but with an appetite for unrighteousness that just wants to be caught innocent at the final day of judgment. And Jesus says, if you're serious about righteousness, you got to wipe the lines away. You got to wipe the lines away. And you got to ask, what does God, what is he trying to do here? The king said this. The king that rode into town today said this. What he's telling us is that there's many of us who use the notion of being good to actually do evil. Before I leave, I just want to say legalism can actually make us far more wretched of a person because we have so clearly hemmed in what good looks like that we know exactly where we can be wild. All right. Example number three. Verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Notice the fault there is on the man. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this one requires a little bit of background, right? It's not one of the Ten Commandments. We're not generally familiar with it. It, it, This owes its origin to a set of verses in Deuteronomy in the 24th chapter, where because of the hardness of the hearts of people, the Lord gave, right, the Lord gave a certain sort of provision. Okay, this, Jesus will come on and say, Moses gave this to you because your hearts were hard. Right? Sin was in the world. So God's giving a law to try to make sense of the mayhem. But in Deuteronomy 24, there's this, this provision okay, that in the case where a husband become, finds his wife, in, and it's not clear what the conditions are for this, but unsuitable, or intolerable, it says he must write her a certificate of divorce. Now, the goal of that law, if you read it in context, is to protect the woman. He's saying to the man, you can't just put her out of the house so that she looks like, like an adulteress and has no way of making... There was really, in this time, very little hope for a woman apart from the home. So he's saying you can't just kick her out and now she's walking around with, with no way to get back into another home. You need to write her, she's no longer a married woman. She's free. She's free to remarry. Here, go. That way she can go and marry into another home. It's written to protect her. 
Okay? Now, add a couple thousand years to that and the sinful nature of man to that. And what happened is, over time, what was used to narrowly, what was a narrow provision to try to curb the amount of evil taking place when divorce happened, it had become this wild provision by which the Hebrews used to get divorced. They grab onto a little phrase called any reason, and they said, I guess this means I can get divorced for any cause, and all I have to do is write her a letter. You're out. Here. As soon as you get bored with her, just write her a letter. That is, divorce was an epidemic among the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. It's not some rare thing that the 20th century invented. It was rife. And they were getting divorced because they said, why, we have this provision from Moses. Okay? In light of that, Jesus says, you have warped the narrow provision. The very thing that I was using to curb the evil of divorce, you're using to multiply it. That's what he's saying here. I just want to say this. Anytime our fixation is on the rule and not the principle, okay? Anytime in the Word of God, or in life for that matter, that our fixation is on the rule and not the principle behind the rule, we set ourselves up as Lord over the rule. Right? Because you have to decide what it means, don't you? I mean, after all, we have to do the hard work of interpretation. And when, if it's just the rule, then you're going to, you, the rule never wins against a person. You know, as soon as you want to break the rule, you're going to say things like, well, I was written a great deal of time ago, and we need to do a contextual study. What we really need is a conversation. Conversation about the merits of this rule in our present context. You're going to use big fancy words like that, and you'll find a study that shows that truth about it is this word here, you know, in the Hebrew, if in one place else in the Bible it's translated Tuesday, and so on Tuesday I can get divorced, but on Wednesday I can't. This happens all the time. If we lose the principle of God, right? The principles of God, what God wants for us. When he says his spirit, that sits over us and it pushes down on us. God wants me, wants me to be pure in sight. I can't escape it. When I reduce it to a rule, well, now I can be the Lord over it. A rule is like a rock in a river. It just doesn't, the water doesn't even notice it. That's what they had done here. The king who came into the city today is calling out the human condition that regularly uses biblical words and concepts to do evil and not to do good. Let's look at the fourth example, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. 
Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, a little more background on this too. In the Old Testament, when you read the law, you find this occasion where people are making oaths and they're making vows. And so that's customary back then. Uh, but they find this tradition rises, which is whatever you do, you don't swear by the name of God because if you swear by the name of God and then you can't come tr- through with your word, you have used the Lord's name in vain and you've therefore violated one of the Ten Commandments and now you're in serious trouble. See how the rules work if you focus on the rules? So what they did is they made a very, very common habit of swearing about swearing for all sorts of things with lesser things than God. So I won't swear on God, but I'll swear on heaven. See, it's just under God. Or I'll swear on earth. Or if I'm intending to break it, I might just swear on Jerusalem. So they had this, in fact, kids understand this better than anybody. They had this whole rank order of, if I swear by that, I really need to keep the law. You know what I'm saying? But if I, if I intend to break the law, I'll just swear by that. It's easy enough. Kids call this crossing your fingers. You know, I promise. Honestly. You know, or when I was growing up, what we would do is we could say all sorts of things that weren't true, but if someone said, do you promise? If someone in our house, like my brother or sister said, well, do you promise? I would have to actually tell the truth. Okay, so honestly, Dave, there's a bear in the closet. Do you promise? No. He would ruin it. Like, you, and you weren't, it was sort of to break the rules to ruin the joke that early. You weren't supposed to do that. But there was a sense of if I promise or if I swear then it's really true. But if I don't, then all bets are off. In fact, Matthew uh, 23. See, I used my bookmark. Uh, this is the last week of his life, and you, don't, you can listen. You don't you need to turn there necessarily. But this is, this is after his Palm Sunday. He's in the city, and he's talking, okay? And he's speaking more strongly now, right? His, his objective is to be crucified. And as he's speaking, notice, I want you to hear, he's speaking the same truth. Just listen to this. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And you say, if anybody swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater? the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Even in this teaching in Matthew. Notice their goal is to swear by heaven. Right? They, don't want to, they don't want God involved in the swear. I've got to keep God out of it so I don't get in trouble. So I'll swear by heaven. He says, well, that's God's throne. Well, okay, I'll swear by earth. He says, well, that's the Lord's footstool. I'll swear by Jerusalem. That's the home of the king. I'll swear by my head. I made your hair. That's what Jesus is doing. You know what he says? Rather than being so interested to know where it is you're allowed to lie, how about you just tell the truth? Rather rather you being so concerned about what sorts of things that I say do I have to keep versus what sorts of things do I say do I not have to keep? And we know that, right? We all know that. Oh, everybody's doing that. Listen, everybody's doing that. You can do that. You know, they're never going to take you to court on that. That's the fine print. That would never stand up in the court of law. Or you can do that. You know, we, we grow up with sort of all that around us. What's the Lord say? The Lord says, when you say yes, it should mean yes. 
And when you say no, it should mean no. The king who's coming into the city today is systematically taking our conception of true godliness and righteousness. If we really take what he's saying in mind, who of us can use the word good? Who here is good? All right, fifth example. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forced you to go a mile with him, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is another one of these. Another one of these really interesting ones where what they've done is they've grabbed a rule in the Old Testament, a rule in the the law, and they have isolated it and then reworded, not reworded it, but reintended it. So it does say in Leviticus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It does say that. Why does it say that? It says this as a way of curbing revenge. So if you read it in Leviticus, the notion is if somebody kills your cow, you cannot go over and burn his house down. We, we as a people will not exist if we live this way. Right? The Hatfields and the McCoys. You cannot have this escalating revenge. And you know how it is. If, even as kids, if somebody, you know, brother or sister punch you, you punch them back the equal amount? That's the wrong answer you punch them back harder. That's how revenge works. This will teach you not to do it again. And Leviticus was there to say, no, that's not how we act. We do not exceed. We do not exceed what is justfully ours. It was given to curb the human tendency. Okay? But by the time it's in the life of Jesus, by the time Jesus is walking the earth, it had become, rather than a way of curbing Vengeance, it had become an ethic that somehow central to the Lord at the very center of God's heart is the notion of justice. And I deserve my just desserts. I have rights. How dare they do that? An eye for an eye. And Jesus comes in and says, you've got the heart of God all wrong here. You have the heart of God all wrong here. Is justice really at the center of God's heart? Jesus would say, you really want to know how you should be? Bury the hatchet. Walk away. You don't need justice. You don't need justice because mercy is at the center. Mercy is at the center with God. When we accentuate, this is an interesting thing, when we accentuate a particular character of God that happens to suit us in the moment, we end up misrepresenting him in total. 
let me say it again. When we accentuate a particular attribute of God that happens to suit us in the moment, we end up misrepresenting the nature of God. So someone can say, well, doesn't God care about justice? I would say absolutely God cares about justice. All sorts of places in the Bible God cares about justice. That I'm, Jesus here is not saying that God no longer cares about justice. What Jesus is saying is, is you have made that your particular fancy, and in doing so, you no longer know the nature of God. At the center of God is a concern for justice that is swallowed up by mercy. He alone understands what's just. We should see that so that we're shocked when we see how much mercy he has. The king, five days from now, will be murdered for saying things like this. Five days from now, he's going to be murdered. He's going to hang on the cross. He's going to shed blood until he stops breathing air. And he's going to die for having said things like this. You know what one of his last words are going to be? Forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Is it going to be a word of retribution from a just God? Mercy. Okay, one more. Example 6, verse 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, this is a really interesting one because what's actually happened is. They've grabbed a scriptural precept, love your neighbor. Okay, that's in Leviticus. Love your neighbor, Leviticus 19. They've grabbed it, and they have affixed to it a man-made corollary, hate your enemy. Right? If God's telling us to love our neighbors, then, well, by definition, I guess we're supposed to not love our enemy. Lord never said that. Lord never said that. It's a human corollary. If I have to love my neighbor, then I guess I'm allowed to hate my enemy. My question to you is, well, who's your enemy? You say, well, not my neighbor. I'd say, okay, what happens if your neighbor shoots your dog? Well, he's my enemy. There you go. So essentially what you're saying is, is you love the people you like and they hate the people you hate. That's what he's saying here. If... They're your neighbor until they're not your neighbor. They're your enemy. Then what is the point? What's the power of the teaching? I've seen this uh, in so many ways. I've seen people who, you know, when marriages fall apart, people who made vows to love one another until death did them part, and they find themselves to be mortal enemies. I hate that person more than any other person on the planet. You see, they went from, they didn't go from neighbor to hated. They went from covenantally loved to mortally hated. You see, we never escape the command to love. You need to love your wife or your husband. If they're not your wife or your husband, you need to love your friend. If they're not your friend, you need to love your enemy. God says, notice God gives rain to the people that are terrible. He gives rain to the unjust. 
He gives son to the unrighteous. All of this signifies to me, when I take all of this in, it signifies to me, there is such a measure of sin that is in us, right? Hiding behind a padlock in the trunk of our life, far away from people to see. There's such a significant measure of that sin that barring any real change, any real change, we have no hope of being righteous. The king who in five days is going to willingly give his life for people who hate him, willingly give his life for his enemy. He says here, love them, love your enemies, so that you may be called sons of the Most High God. Love them. Now, on the, the slight, infinitesimally small chance that you think you've passed the test so far, verse 48 solves it, just be perfect. Right? Like, if so far you feel like you've navigated it, okay, for one, if that's you, and I don't think anybody's here, you'd be the most prideful person on the planet, right? But here, the Lord deals with it. Be perfect. That's what I'm saying, is be perfect. To which you might say, well, A, this doesn't sound like good news before Easter. Or B, I can't do that. You're, you're asking me to, to respect a law that I cannot fulfill. You may even feel judged right now. Because some part in yourself is, some center part of your religion is, I have to be good. Like, in the theology, you may not call yourself a theologian, we're all theologians. And in your theology... You may be bothered right now because it has always been banking on the fact that you're good enough. To which the standard of Christ has now been laid before you. Be perfect. Be perfect. And you may think, well, why would he do, why? This is not good news. And you almost, you might even take this as an affront. This is not good news. And I'm here to say that Jesus is not saying this to judge you. Jesus is saying this to rescue you. He is saying, he alone, right? No one is ever going to be this honest with you. Only the person who actually one day is going to knock the lock off of your chest and go in and look at things that you've buried in there so deep you've forgotten about them. He alone loves you enough to tell you, like, this is the standard of God. And if you think you're going to be good enough to get to him, you have another thing coming. This Jesus, what he's going to say, right, in five days, he's walking in as a victor today. This is why, by the way, people don't like him, is because he says things like this. And in five days, he is willingly going to climb up on the cross, and he's going to shed blood and give his life for you. That's what he's going to do. For you, he's going to do that. He's going to say, I will take all that whole trunk of junk that you have, I'll take it on my shoulders. I'll take all of your unrighteousness. I'll make a, an exchange with you. How about we make a deal? I will take everything that you did wrong with me and I will give you my righteousness. That's what he's going to say. That's why we call it Good Friday. I'm going to give you all of my goodness, 
all of my goodness. And I, who stares deep in, who cares? I could care less about your room. I don't even want to see your top drawer. I just want to see what's really going on, how you're really living and who you really are. He's saying to you, the exchange I'm offering is, is you get my righteousness and I get your sin. He's not offending you. He's saving you. Let's pray. Lord, for anyone in the room, Lord, who has been operating on the religion of goodness, who thinks they're a pretty good person, and if they get to the pearly gates, St. Peter will be somehow be impressed to open the doors. Lord, we just pray that we lay that down. We lay that heresy down. Lord, we confess when we come before you, you will not compare us to our neighbor. You will not compare us to our father or our mother or our brother or our sister. There is no comparison, Lord. The command is to be perfect. And so, Lord, we proclaim to you in prayer that our hope is the exchange which Christ offers, his righteousness for our sin. His righteousness for our sin, Lord. And I, I'll pray right now. If there's someone here this morning who's never, never approached God this way or feels that this is an important time or a step of faith, to say, Lord, I confess my sinfulness to you. And I need your righteousness. I ask you, forgive me of my sins. Help me to follow you. Give me your spirit so that I can live beyond the rules, so I can live beyond the lines, so I can care about why you would ask me to be certainly, so I can look at your law and enjoy it rather than worry about if I'm good enough, Lord. We acknowledge, Lord, there is no way to the Father but through you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.